I'm Hayley Jane Sims. And I'm Kate Bradbury. And this is your Manchester Stories. Dr. Gail Bradbrook is co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, an international, non-violent civil disobedience movement bringing awareness of the need for action on climate change and the threat of mass extinction. Gail has a PhD in molecular biophysics and has worked for charities focused on universal access to the internet. Gail, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Would you mind telling us a bit about where you grew up, first of all? Yeah, I come from a town called South Emsall, which is in West Yorkshire. It's between uh, Leeds and Sheffield, around that area. Uh, My dad was a coal miner. I usually tell that to people within about three minutes of meeting them. I'm obviously quite proud and uh, feel quite a bit about my working class background. Um, it was a an ordinary high school, I think, uh, doing its best to support its brightest students, I guess. And um, uh, I was supposed to go to Cambridge was the idea, but um, I ended up at Manchester, which I think is a bit of a story of what happens to working class kids, actually. But um, I still really enjoyed being in Manchester and actually think it's a good place for working class people to go. I think it can be really hard going to the sort of Oxbridge. I think that can be quite shocking yeah. for people. Mm, definitely. Did, did you always know that you were going to go to university? Was it always something that you wanted to do growing up? I was very studious. I was a girly swat. I used to run half marathons on a regular basis, I think partly to um, cope with feeling quite bullied at school as a teenager. And I used to play my school notes in my ears. So as a result, I did really well in my kind of exams and stuff like that, you know. I was constantly studying, uh, but mostly like normal people going to sex, drugs and rock and roll, don't they, when they're having a hard time. I went into heavy studying. (laughs) (laughs) And so you originally wanted to go to Cambridge, but Manchester somehow appeared on the horizon. Well, they give you a 2E offer if you've got Oxbridge. I don't know if they still do. Okay. But if you've got, like, Oxbridge on your as your main... um, request mm-hmm. where you want to study then they the other universities give you like a we're, we're just going to have you so that you put them in second place it was a bit of a tactic at the time ah. uh, and Manchester was not like sufficiently far away from home but close enough actually just before I went to university a month before um, a, a dear friend of mine got killed by a drunk driver and it, it turned out to be it's the first time somebody had died in my life and it, I went to university in some shock mm. both in terms mm. of experiencing death and in terms of the culture shock actually of being out of my hometown and um, I think being in Manchester is a much more friendly place to be um, and being not that far away from home was a good move Mm. yeah that's a really interesting kind of yeah I've never thought of it like that like actually Manchester is quite a friendly place Um, I actually put down for staying, I don't know if it still exists, but there was a halls of residence called um, in Chalton Hardy. So it's called Hardy Farm in Hardy Lane in Chalton Hardy. And I put that down to stay there. Literally nobody else wanted to stay in that halls of residence because it was so far out. But I, I just like the address. <laughs> so I yeah. didn't really know it was a good idea to be near university and near all the action. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, how long were you in those halls? Just for the year. Oh, just for the yeah. first year, right. And then did you move close to campus? Yeah, we sort of rented a a house, as people did in... in, um, I've forgotten the name of some of the places, but, you know, the place where all the Indian restaurants are. Oh, like Rush Rush Home. Rush Home. Yeah, yeah. So you you did your undergraduate degree and stayed on to do your PhD. Um, 
it, can you tell us a bit about your experience um, of being a woman studying science at the time? Yeah, so I um, I did really well in my degree because I was a girly swat still. Uh, I, I, I got the best exam results in my year, I think joint with an, a, a guy. And uh, I won quite a few prizes and things like that. Um, and I mean, in hindsight, I think Manchester might have considered suggesting I went to Oxbridge to do my PhD. But I also, I think I had a real need to feel secure. And uh, John Helliwell, who was my main PhD supervisor, is really friendly, welcoming guy. And he really was a big advocate for women in science. He was taught by a woman called Margaret Adams, who was taught by Dorothy Hodgkin, who's a Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist, who also taught Margaret Thatcher crystallography. So... Uh, Mrs. Thatcher and I did similar PhDs as it oh, happens. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and in that way, it was a good team to be in. I, I was jointly supervised by somebody in the more theoretical side of things, and that's actually where my heart lies. I was more interested in theorising and, and broader scientific questions than specific. So I didn't actually really do chemistry as a PhD because there was no chemical change. It was about thinking about how sugar molecules bound to each other. And I still don't know to this day if the research that I did have had any validity, but John used to tell people that I would be the next Dor- Dorothy Hodgkin. And I sat and explained what I was thinking about to a postdoc one time. And he told people they thought, they thought I'd win a Nobel Prize at some point. And um, yet my experience of being a woman in science was to cry in the toilets a lot, to feel inadequate. Things happened like the men would go off to the pub and they would talk about football for an hour or so and then they'd talk about science, but I would have left because I'd got bored of the football. So it's like you're, you're, you're kind of finding yourself being excluded quite a bit. The, around that time, the internet came in and my studies were very computational and I didn't have that history that I'd had a BBC micro, whatever they were called, at home. Do, do you see mm. what I mean? So you're always feeling inadequate. I didn't mm. really have the programming skills that I needed. And there was some attempt to teach them to you, but they needed a lot more practice. So I think for the time of the studies where it was really clear that you had to learn all this stuff and be able to answer exam questions, I was really good at it. When it was a sort of PhD and I was working on a an, a fundamental issue in science, how do things bind together? So I bit off a lot. You know, I decided to have two different supervisors, um, which is a foolish thing to do, by the way, generally. <laughs> I think. Uh, and they, I don't think they hardly ever talk to each other, by the way. And then I ha- would get really excited about the thoughts I was having. And I think, if I'm really honest, a lot of scientists, there's a lot of ego in the masculine and 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 social they're not very good at um socializing a lot of male scientists and i'm sorry for generalizing so much because i'm sure there's some amazing ones um my first husband um is uh, professor jeff forshaw who's still at manchester and he's a, a lovely lovely guy yeah so what i was talking about so i was basically looking at crystallographic data at the data that comes from doing kinetic studies, from studying how things, what heats release when things bind together, um, and looking on computers doing molecular dynamics simulations, so all these three different data and bringing them together, it felt like quite a lot of science sits in one of those subjects and doesn't try to bring them together. And when you try to be a 
cross-cutting across different aspects of science, I did find it really hard to communicate what I was thinking about mm. and to have scientific conversations mm. with the men around me. Do you ever honesty. Th- it was tricky. Yeah. Do you ever th- consider if you had been a man, like what kind of path you would have taken, whether you would have taken a completely different path to what you've taken there? Absolutely. And you watched all the good women leave if I'm honest. Mm. And I think the intersection of class and gender is a particular thing. And I was with the chair of the Wellcome Trust yesterday, who was a woman, and the impression I got talking to her is it's not enough changed. And I think that women and working class people, and I imagine black people and other people are underrepresented in any, any subject, you need to hang on to the good ones. There seems to be this focus on getting lots of people to study science, but actually mm. when you've got some good ones who are really into it, like get them some mentoring so that they can navigate the culture. Because I just constantly felt like everybody else knew what was going off and I didn't have language to describe that. And I even put together a display about women and black people in science just off literally off my own back just wanting in this department that was dominated by it was only white men as I remember to, to have some other pe- representation so it's that longing mm. and I remember John as I said he was a real advocate for John Helliwell for uh, women in science giving me a book about Dorothy Hodgkin and there was a picture of her on the back and the only other woman scientist that I'd actually seen up to that point was Marie Curie and she's like a French woman from the last century with like a rough round in it. Nothing, no disrespect, that's what they look like. But yeah. it was like, I couldn't really relate. And suddenly I saw a picture of Dorothy Hodgkin as this beautiful, ordinary looking woman. I felt like she could have been like my neighbour. And I cried. I went home and just cried for hours. I just, I think there's a hunger to, to feel like you're supposed to be there. And that has to be somehow baked into how the culture holds you. So do you think there's like strength in numbers then? We need to nurture a whole group of scientists rather than kind of pushing forward these bright stars. Do you need to kind of bring more together to bring it's more... It's okay just to have ordinary and you and, and good practice and scientists don't have to have excellence every single time, do you? No. I think there can be an overemphasis on that. Yeah. You know, women who are good at and enjoying science should need, need to be supported, not mm. just picking the absolute bright stars and mm. making a thing about that. Because what's constantly happening is, uh, and I remember seeing it, the men just seem to know how to network and how to push themselves forwards and get what they need and again I'm generalising you know obviously uh, but I think there is something in both class and gender that's that's different there so your your student experience both undergraduate and postgraduate um, did it inspire you to campaign for the issues that you're passionate about today and did the science that you studied help to shape this as well Is were, were you active politically in your university experience? Sure. I mean, I'd, I joined the Green Party when I was 14. I'd been an animal rights campaigner before I went to university. So it's always been sort of in my blood. And it's not from my family. I mean, my dad in the strike, in the miners' strike, just put his feet up for a year and <laughs> drove my mum mad. <laughs> but um, I... I the, the great thing about student life is there's just lots and lots of different societies you can get involved in. I, I remember joining Green Group and the Animal Rights Group. And again, I, I in hindsight, I hung out with the animal rights people because a bit more working class. I didn't do that, you know, like consciously. It was just, I felt a bit more at home there. And all these things need to tell us something about social movements, about what it feels like to mm. feel different. You know, I was talking to a black woman the other day who was saying that being in an Extinction Rebellion meeting and being the only black woman there, it's just hard, you know, it's mm. just something yeah. that you're trying to carry. Um, so, 
yeah, I'd always been passionate about uh, social change. And I also, I think one of the most important things that happened to me is I met a woman called um, Joe Bird and also Billy Ibberden, who were both active in the women's um, society or whatever it was called at the time. And they were both interested in um, looking at how to make changes on your own self as part of a political process. Uh, so using some techniques to kind of listen well to each other. And I think I just really desperately needed that. And it was a process that I engaged with for over 10 years that um, helped to balance out the desire for external change with recognising that the system that you live in affects you internally and that you have your own wounds to heal mm. if you're going to show up in a good way in the world. So. And... Uh, the path has kind of led you to to kind of found uh, founder <laughs> led you to become the founder of Extinction Rebellion. One of them, yeah. Yeah. So what 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 is the story <laughs> that started this movement? Yeah, I so I've been interested in social change the whole time and trying different things. I set a group up in Manchester called Agenda that was about gender issues. Um, we did earlier things actually around uh, trans rights they were named slightly differently then but they were just sort of coming to the surface for example I think what what made a real difference for me in the last few years um, are the use of psychedelic medicines in a medicinal way I don't know if you've got any research on that in Manchester but uh, have you heard these stories you know I um, went to pray in a retreat because I've been trying to start civil disobedience since 2010. I've been part of the tax justice movement. I've done things around economic literacy. I've been part of the transition movement as well in Stroud and writing strategies for woodcraft folk and all sorts of stuff. And it was kind of like, I know that mass civil disobedience is what needs to happen. And I talked endlessly to people about it, it felt like. And I, I did meet somebody called George Barder as part of Occupy, the Occupy movement, um, the second iteration, which was called Occupy D- Democracy in um, 2014, I think. And we started something called Compassionate Revolution. But so many things I've tried have not worked, you know, they're like things that just didn't work, basically, and you got so far with them. And I just got to a stage where I thought, I'm definitely missing some information here. So... Part of my practice is spiritual and it would take a while to explain how that sits alongside being a scientist. You know, I actually think it's quite possible for the two to sit alongside each other. I think there's science that speaks to spirituality and vice versa. Uh, And um, prayers were answered, to to cut a long story short. I mean, first of all, I work with... um, um, I, I use the word medicines because you know I did take ecstasy when I was at Manchester like lots of people did it was the rave scene wasn't it I didn't do it a lot actually but I did a bit and with that kind of drug you know you MDMA you take this thing you have a, a wild time and then you've got to deal with the come down you know when you're working with psychedelic medicines you have a rough night you go through a massive process you might be throwing your guts up all night you feel horrendous you maybe get really scary images coming in your head and Sometime later, with some processing, something's been shifted in your psyche that's really important. So it's a medicinal process, it's not fun. Uh, with the boga, which is from the Tabernantha boga tree, 
in the Gabon held by the Bwiti uh, indigenous folks there that is like a kind of really deep inner work that dealt with anxiety on such an incredible way it's really good with PTSD mm-hmm. as a medicine and it also helps people deal with addictions it's very incredible that it's not more known about and more used it gets people with heroin actually uh, and then I also work with um, the brew called Ayahuasca as well and made a prayer for the codes for social change and within a month I'd met Roger Hallam who's doing a PhD and had a lot of useful information gave it to me over a four hour period and then told me he'd just given me the codes for social change used the exact phrase that I'd actually prayed for incredible. and then we started to work together and the prayer had been I need people to work with I need to know how to do this thing so there was a lot about uh, well there was a lot about working with Roger obviously that's been a really incredible part of it and he is um tricky person at times actually because he's so very focused he's quite neurodiverse uh and his his energy in my opinion has absolutely been needed in our movement to move it forwards and there's often quite a bit of cleaning up that i've done around um you know just how it how how some people feel when you've got somebody just absolutely determined to to press to push ahead um uh he's he's a person who incredibly sits in his integrity he's actually in jail at the minute for um attempting to fly drones at Heathrow Airport. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Rod, you've heard of Roger. So he's like one of the co-founders and um, some people call us the sun and the moon. You know, it's, there's something so kind of bright and forwards with him. And I have this more trying to hold and mother everybody. I don't really want to be the universal mother for everybody, but it's part of you are described as that. You know, in our research, um, you know, sort of reading up about Extinction Rebellion, you are the godmother or the the earth mother of the movement sort of thing. I know, I sound like such a fucking hippie. No. (laughs) I am. Yeah, so it's fair enough. I think um, there's, there's something about... I mean, I've done a, a talk online called um, a Holistic Theories of Change. So there's somewhere I can land what I do that's it, and, and what the movement needs, in my opinion, which is four different types of things that all have to work together. So inner work, getting on the streets, noticing that change is coming and how you respond to that and how you actually organise. And also this, this possibility that something magic can happen if you... Uh, lift up prayers for change um, which relies on the idea that there might be universal consciousness which my understanding of brain science is that that's one of the better models for explaining consciousness so I just dropped that in so I don't sound like a nut of it it has captured people though this movement and uh, did you expect it to move as quickly as it's moved because uh, absolutely not. But by the way, the other piece that I did bring in, well, I think I brought two pieces in. Roger had done a paper and we're sitting in the room where we decided to um, start Extinction Rebellion. And he had this paper, which was tell the truth and ask people to act accordingly. And it's really what you call emergency mode messaging that he was stumbling across. He then put a talk together and I watched it and thought, I think the science is a bit ropey. <laughs> He's a more of a social scientist. So I spent last summer nailing the science as best I could anyway and also it became clear to me in that process that was grief was needed to be felt and a, a really key part of the of the juice if you like or the fuel of Extinction Rebellion are people facing the grief of these times and it's quite an incredible unravelling it's especially and again generalising you know it's especially women and young people that are able to feel it 
and, yeah. and, and bringing their courage to the movement off the back of it. So um, that's where the science came in, is having the ability to understand which bits of science to trust and how to speak about it and how to think about the IPCC as a body and to what extent, you know, we shouldn't really focus on the IPC science, in my opinion. It's useful, but it's not the science to have your eye on, actually, which you can say more about. What question did you actually ask me about the um, where the movement's at now? Or? I can't remember what was the question was now. <laughs> I, I kind you of were just wondering, responded. How, wondering how it how it moved. Yeah, because it moved so quickly. Yeah. So we yeah we um I mean we were launching this thing in Parliament Square on October the thirty first, and just before we were launching, George Monbiot wrote an article that just mentioned us actually right at the end. So it wasn't mostly about us, and I think Bernie Sanders shared that article and I think we were in a zeitgeist moment the the weather had been really fucked up last summer um, and the IPCC report had come out and there was the hot house earth paper there was quite a lot in the field Um, and there was this movement talking about mass civil disobedience I think we chose a good name it was a 25 step process and we nearly fell out over it (laughs) Um, but I think it had that passion in just two words of saying this is how serious it is with extinction and what we're going to do about it rebellion you know uh it spreads beyond anybody's wildest dreams actually and i think that also greta thunberg was her piece was you know she joined us in parliament square to help us launch and she came in april as well so this it's been interwoven with that movement as well but i i, I think there is something of the hard work that people have put in. There's something of how we've held this both through science, through grief, and through the way we've done our organising, which is based on a lot of research about how to do it that's helped this thing. Um, but I think there's just also a degree of timeliness. Yeah. Well, actually, we've left it too late, in all honesty, in so many ways, haven't we? But do you know what I mean? It was the, the right timing for a movement to emerge. And do you have a plan for the movement like do you know where things you don't necessarily have to tell us if it's a secret but do you have an idea of what you're doing next oh, and where it's going to go I don't know when this podcast's going out but we're back on the streets on the 7th of October um, the intention is to be there for two weeks and my belief is that it's going to be about democracy this time there's lots of ways in which we could be played by the system there's even the concern that they might use the Civil Contingencies Act or something and that would be as outrageous as trying to uh, prorogate Parliament, and guess what? That's already been tried. So, never say never. Uh, and I think it'll be a moment to say democracy clearly isn't working. We declared ourselves in rebellion with the British government. We said the social contract was broken, and a year has passed, and literally nothing of any practical note has happened. You know, the British government is about to fund to the tune of a hundred billion the biggest deforestation of the UK since World War One, for the sake of HS2, which is essentially an airport shuttle service. It's opening new coal mines. It's fracking. It's issuing new oil and gas licences. It doesn't make sense, you know. Um, it has a law that says you have to optimise the use of fossil fuels. So there's been a bit of lip service paid. It was great that Theresa May did something on her way out, but the idea that you're going to go to net zero carbon by 2050 is a death sentence for our children. Is that the timeline that we're facing at the moment? 
Well, so, um, do you know what? I keep remembering the question you asked me before and my brain's still working on it. I've got a terrible <laughs> brain like that. So just in terms of what next for the movement, the uh, so we'll be back on the streets. I'm also working on a mass debt refusal. So we'll what we do, it, like no strategy that any person at the heart of XR rights is going to run unless everybody else wants to do it, right? So it's not like that. It's not like you're running a business and you just go like, okay, we're now launching this new product, everybody get in line. Uh, so we'll see if people are willing to do that. But XR so far has focused on democracy and the failings of democracy and the failings of the media to an extent. It's in the context of a of an economic and legal system that doesn't make sense, that's killing life on earth. And I I think there's a lot you can say about that and it's not about being ideological, it's just literally obviously something needs to change here. So I'd like to see people refusing to pay their debts to call on the um international bodies related to international finance to say we've got to rewire humanity. We have to do this thing differently. Um so I'm intending to take out a loan and give it to some indigenous people who are getting fucked over by the bank that I take the loan off. Something like that. That's the kind of thinking at the minute. So how can you tell us how strong Extinction Rebellion is at the moment? You kind of you were talking about figures a bit earlier. Yeah, can you sure. give us those figures again? Yeah. yeah. So so at the moment, um, Extinction Rebellion's grown all the time. We there is about 160,000 people on the UK database alone, about a quarter of a million worldwide. And I, I reckon there's probably only one in 10 activists who are on the database. So we, we perhaps have about um, 2% of people in the UK, which according to Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan's data, you need up to 3.4% in active participation to have a to do the social change. So we may well be in that zone. You need about 50 to 60% of the public talking about the issue and really deeply caring about it. And some of the data suggests we're getting there as well. You can certainly see the shift. We are, there's about 213 local groups in the UK at the minute and 590 worldwide. And we're in 72 countries. So this thing has just gone sort of semi-ballistic yeah. I, I sometimes say spread like wildfire and think that's not really a great analogy <laughs> so what what do you what would you like us to do what would you like us to take home just today so we're of that 50 to 60 percent that's that wants to hear more about what extinction rebellion is doing what can we do as individuals to make a change to make a shift i mean literally rebel you know, that's the thing is notice that as a person very likely to be of privilege if you're living in a Western democracy, that the process of getting on the streets and risking arrest is unlikely to have massive consequences in your life. But not everybody has to get arrested in XR, you know. I mean, some people, it would not be the right for them. And I can't guarantee if you're black or you've got mental health issues, it's a good thing to do. Although there have been people who've been arrested black and it's been fine. So I'm just, you know, it's a choice, isn't it? You have to you have to weigh it up for yourselves. You might have caring responsibilities. Uh, but that is the most important thing right now is that the change will not come unless governments and the state and people come together and really demand change if we do it that way that's how politics works you have to have a confrontation moment it can be very respectful and very peaceful and disciplined and beautiful but it doesn't work just to make personal change in fact that's part of the trap of these times is oh well maybe i should do x y or z um that said 
um, and you've got the brilliant Kevin Anderson at Manchester University, otherwise known as my climate scientist crush. Um, <laughs> I don't think you'd be the first to say that. No, no, no. I, know. Um, I had a disco with him and uh, Andrew Sims and um, their partners this uh, summer in Glastonbury, actually, and... Um, it was a really, you know, we're in the high entirety of Glastonbury Festival and we found uh, on the dance floor the Rebellion, the Science and the Rapid Transition Alliance lead. It was like, awesome, you know, beware <laughs> the revolution that dances or I'm not dancing if it's, I'm not, you know, it's not my revolution if it's not dancing, it's that kind of stuff, isn't it? It's cool. Anyway. That's but, very 90s Manchester. I'm just yes, going to put that up. No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, do you know, it's so fabulous, the, the kind of, the different vibe in Extinction Rebellion. So I was at the Southwest Uprising, it felt really Southwest, you know what I mean? And Manchester's got its own thing. It's so cool, isn't it, Manchester? It's just mm. got that uh, beauty about it. Um, uh, yeah, just that the, the regions in 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 England uh, and 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 the devolved countries. Are, yeah, it's all cool. Anyway, makes me happy. So, what I was going to say is Kevin Anderson's figures is ten percent of the population do fifty percent of the carbon emissions. So if you're somebody who flies every year, or more than once a year, like lots of academics do, lots of people with that kind of middle-class lifestyle, if you're eating meat on a regular basis, driving a car, having more than one or two children, you know, you are the big emitters. Right. So these are the things to think about, whether you want to carry on doing that. I mean, I think people always have... A, and, you know, it's not about being perfect and giving yourself, like, this really massive hard time, but it's about living with integrity and thinking about, you know, how is it going to feel in years to come? I often think if you could think about your own carbon emissions as being the legacy and leave for your children to clean up afterwards, mm. like, what do you really want to do that to them? So we've come to the last question where... Um, and now talking to you about science, and now I'm going to suggest that we have a time machine with which you can go back in time. <laughs> Please Very don't ask cool. me how it works. <laughs> Physics is all I'll say. Um, but we've given you access to our time machine. Where or what time in Manchester would you go to? So, I mean, I absolutely love my time in Manchester. I had a brilliant time on, on many fronts. And all the even the painful things that happen to you in your life, you realise they're just part of your journey that makes you who you are. So there's no point, like, regretting anything, is there? Just things, things happen because that's what needed to happen. And one time... My friend uh, Alison came up from Birmingham University to watch this band at the Man Manchester Academy. She said, do you want to come for the night? And I goes like, I think I'll just stay in and revise tonight because I was literally constantly rewriting my chemistry notes and it wasn't even in the run-up to exams. Like, that's how bad a swat I was. And it was Nirvana. Oh, it was Nirvana. Wow. <laughs> what was the note of Nirvana? I, well, they weren't that big a deal. They were playing the right. Manchester Academy, right? So, um, to be fair, I did see them at Reading Festival and at another festival. Um, so I did actually get to see them live. But you know, to have to have not done that was a bit stupid, wasn't it? So, oh. it's a good lesson in um, chilling out. Sometimes I can be a little bit over earnest. So. <laughs> I really wish we had this time machine now. I know, it would be so good. Some of the places people go. Gail, well, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, it's been a pleasure and we could continue for a very long time, but we have to wrap it up. Thank you for listening to Your Manchester Stories. Please rate, review and subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you listen. If you are a graduate of the University of Manchester 
you can connect with us at your.manchester.ac.uk. This podcast is produced by Kate Bradbury and Hayley Jane Sims on behalf of the Division of Development and Alumni Relations at the University of Manchester. The music for this podcast was supplied by Blue Dot Sessions.